again, it is my privilege to talk to you after a funny kid commercial, um, or whatever that is. We are starting the series called God Can, and um, it presupposes that God can forgive, God can restore, and God can provide. And when we make those statements that God can forgive, for example, immediately there's some of us in the audience that say they have the same kind of a reaction that this little kid has. Because behind the statement, God can forgive, is the thought that I need to be forgiven. That there is somebody out there that has a right and a prerogative to make certain kind of a declarations about my life. And as human beings, we don't like that. As human beings, deep down in our hearts, we don't want to be told that there is something wrong with our lives. Deep down in our hearts, we don't want to be told that maybe the train that we've been on has been heading to the wrong direction. And yet tonight, that is precisely where we're going to go. One more of a prosaic reason why we use this is because in our family... My kids have been getting introduced to Star Wars. And this has been like the theme of last few weeks. To the point that my 10-year-old Paul and my 5-year-old Danny are going to be dressing up as Yoda and Luke Skywalker. And they were even able to to, to talk their 3-year-old sister Greta into being an Ewok. I mean... She was adamant about not wanting to be an Ewok. But then they put two brilliant minds together and they said, do you want to be a koala? (laughs) And she said, yes, I want to be a koala. They said, okay, you're going to be a koala named Ewok. (laughs) So three out of four of my kids are going to be dressing up in Star Wars and there have been some thoughts of me being Darth Vader, but um, we'll see how far we can go with this idea. But the thing behind it is that, you know, my kids are voracious readers. They love reading, and some of that is they've inherited from their parents. When I was at a very young age, my parents, for one of my birthdays, they gave me several boxes. As a little kid, you, you know, you're, you're excited to open up a gift, and your parents walk in the other room and say, here's five boxes. And immediately you're thinking either this is something great or a big bummer. And at first I opened up and there were books. And I was really disappointed. They had given me a 120 volume set of world literature. Everything from Theodore Dreiser to Pablo Neruda. As a 10 year old kid, I didn't know what the heck to do with these things. But over time, I developed a taste for reading. And one of my favorite authors became Ernest Hemingway. We have a picture of him. Well, the thing about Hemingway is that reading his stories is like watching fishing on TV. I mean, there's not much that happens. I mean, you just take a bullfight, a bottle of wine, and a picnic basket, and you get the plot line for most of his stories, by and large, outside the one that has a fish and a man involved. And and you're thinking, how the heck can you drag this thing out for pages and pages? I mean, there is no sexual overtones. There is no relational triangles. But he does it somehow. He he writes well. And a lot of the 
Hemingway scholars are saying that most of his short stories, they're autobiographical. That the things that he writes are really reflective of his own life. And one of the stories called The Capital of the World, it tells the story of a little boy named Paco. And it's a pretty much just the same way most of his stories, it's pretty predictable, just the same way. You know, it's a predictable plot line, predictable development, just the same way. It's very predictable as to what's going to happen to, you know, Cincinnati Bengals. You know, they're going to get a great player after a great player, and you know the rest of the story. They're not going to go anywhere, right? Uh, okay, some of you can calm down. <laughs> uh, you're not very excited about that statement. Yes, you... you Yes, there's some of you that are Browns fans. Uh, and, you know, it's the same story for Browns as well, right? <clears throat> okay. All right. Uh, yeah, who day? All right. Calm down. Uh, have a Skyline Coney. You did beat uh, Colts, but, uh, you know, it's kind of like saying that you outran a Maserati that had, uh, you know, Geo Metro engine in it without, well, I mean, yeah. With a starting, without the quarterback. Um, but anyway, I mean, the idea behind the story is that, you know, it, it doesn't go anywhere. You got this little boy named Paco, and it's an ordinary life, and pretty much it ends in a tragic situation. I mean, he dies the meaningless, useless death. But the way the story starts out, and this is how it opens he says, Madrid is full of boys named Paco which is a diminutive of the name Francisco. And there is a Madrid joke about a father who came to Madrid and inserted an advertisement in the personal columns of El Liberal, which said, Paco, meet me at Hotel Montana, noon, Tuesday, all forgiven, Papa. And how a squadron of Guardia Civil had to come out to disperse the 800 young men who answered the advertisement. But Hemingway goes on and he says, that's not the story of Paco that I want to tell you. I don't want to tell you a story of Paco who's in a search of forgiveness. I want to tell you a story of Paco who has a meaningless life, that dies in a useless death. And many would say that that is Hemingway's life story, per se. You see, he has grown up in an evangelical Christian home. His grandparents went to Wheaton College. And yet later on in his life, as he drifted away from faith, his mother with whom he was very close with, disowned him. She refused to see him because he has neglected his duties to his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. At one point in Hemingway's life, his mom sent him, a, for his birthday, she sent him a birthday cake and a shotgun which his father used to commit suicide. Having never been able to experience forgiveness later on in life, on one of the dark nights in Idaho, Hemingway walked downstairs to the basement, grabbed the shotgun, and blew his head off. A Paco who couldn't find his way home. A Paco who couldn't find forgiveness for the life that he has squandered away. And you see, tonight I want to talk about the fact that God can forgive. That God can forgive no matter how far away we have gone. Tonight, I'm going to take you back to the 8th century B.C. This is a very turbulent time in the history of the people of God. You see, at this time, in a political realm, there's kind of like there's a political seesaw going on between the Fertile Crescent and Egypt. 
At first you have the Assyrian Empire, and then you have Egypt, and later there will be Babylon and Egypt. But the fulcrum, the point of contact is always Israel, because that's the only trade route in between north and south. And in the 8th century, the political seesaw is tipping towards north. Assyria is on the rise, and it's becoming powerful. And it's right at this time that Micah writes his book. And Micah is talking about the fact that the people of God are not living their life in the way God has intended for them to live. You see, their priests are corrupt. Their leadership is taking bribes. The poor are being um, abused. The social justice is being neglected. Everybody is attempting to live life in a way to hoard most of the ancient Near Eastern pie for themselves. And Micah is wrestling with the question of how could God ever use this kind of people to be the light to the nations if they themselves are standing on the judgment of God. And when we come towards the end of the book of Micah, last um, ten verses or so, we see Micah coming to the point where he gets down on his knees. And in chapter 7, verse 14... He starts to pray. And he says this, he says, Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead, as in the days of the old. And then he hears God respond to the prayer, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. You see, in essence, Micah is crying out, Shepherd your people with your staff. You see, he's going with this uh, analogy, which is very common in ancient Near East. It portrays God as the shepherd and portrays Israel as the sheep. And he's saying, in our sins, we have wandered away from you and we're alone in the forest. You see, for many of us, you know, especially in Christian circles, you know, the idea of nature has become such a big deal. You know, we just, we love the idea of being in the outdoors and we love this idea of frolicking through the forest with our freshman sweetheart that we met at a fresh express. <laughs> you know, it works for romantic walks, but in ancient Near East, when you have sheep, forest is not a good thing. You see, the idea of a forest in, in the Hebrew language here is it's, a, it's this scrubby wasteland. It's a thicket. You know, in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah compares it as an opposite of the fruitful field. In 2 Samuel, we're told in one point, chapter 18, that the more people were devoured by the forest and by the sword. See, you see, forest works for romantic rendezvous, but it's a bad thing for the sheep. And he's saying, we are stuck in the middle of nowhere. We're stuck without your provision. We're stuck without your help. And we're alone and we're helpless. Listen to the words of C.S. Lewis. He says this, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. We can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite food as if they didn't know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse 
a deaf world. You see, Eugene Peterson says this. He says, if you go against the grain of the universe, you will get splinters. And Micah says, as individuals and as a nation who belongs to God, we are standing there with our hands bleeding with gigantic splinters because we have wandered away from our shepherd. It is a wake-up moment for Micah. It's a wake-up moment, and he says, please get us out of this scrubby wasteland and get us to the land of Bashan. You see, Bashan and Gilead, I have a picture up there. It was the prime farm real estate in Israel. These are the, this is the best pasturing land. And Micah is saying, this is where we belong. But in 721 B.C., when the Syrian military empire comes in, as a judgment at the hands of their God, this land is taken over. It is no longer theirs. And Micah is waking up and he's saying, we have made a huge mess of our lives. And we need somebody to get us out of it. Listen to more of C.S. Lewis. He says this, I am progressing along the path of life in my ordinary contentedly fallen and godless condition, absorbed in a merry meeting with my friends for tomorrow and a bit of work that tickles my vanity today, a holiday or a new book, when suddenly a stab of abdominal pain that threatens serious disease, or a headline in a newspaper that threatens us all with destruction, sends the whole pack of cards tumbling down. At first, I am overwhelmed, and all my little happinesses look like broken toys. Then slowly and reluctantly, bit by bit, I try to bring myself into the frame of mind that I should be in at all times. I remind myself that all these toys were never intended to possess my heart, that my true good is in another world, and my only real treasure is Christ. You see, Micah wakes up in the verse 14 to this harsh reality that is a result of sin in the human life. And he starts praying. And he's only just begun when in verse 15, God interrupts him and he says, I will. If he can put that slide back up there. Um, in verse 15 he says as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt I will show them marvelous things he takes them back into their history back into the time of history when they were stuck as slaves in Israel I mean this is almost 400 years later and God is saying just the same way I took you out of the clutches of the Pharaoh I will do it again and I will do it again and again and again Every time he turned back to me. You see, it gives us a little bit of a glimpse of the heart of God. You know, he's not the kind of a God that's, you know, kind of like this distant, emotionless, detached father that looks at his son who has made a mess, made a mess of his life and says, Well, son, you need to learn the lesson the hard way. I will let you squimmer here in pain while I stand over here and watch the rerun of that wonderful football game while I enjoy my nutty light. He's saying, no. The moment you get down on your knees, the moment you turn back to me, I will step in. And I will do it again 
and again and again. Because you see, as Mike Iaconelli tells us, the idea behind Christianity, the point of Christianity is not about being fixed, but about God's being present in the mess of our unfixedness. You see, God steps in in the midst of this mess that his people made of. And he says, I will intervene. And I will get you out of it. I told you a little bit about my three-year-old. We have a picture of her. That's Greta. Um, That's pretty much her. She's all girl, but she's tough. She has two older brothers. So she can go and alternate really quickly from being a pink princess to being the toughest Attila the Hun you could ever see. But one of the funniest things about her life is that she always wants to do everything herself. And the best part about it is when she tries to make what she calls a butter sandwich. She gets a piece of Wonder Bread and gets some butter out and tries to spread it. You know what happens when it's... Three-year-old tries to spread some butter on Wonder Bread. The designers of Wonder Bread didn't think that through. She pretty much spends five minutes mutilating this piece of bread. A third of it ends up on the knife. A third of it is on the floor. The rest of it is crumpled up on the plate. And eventually she gets frustrated with it. She closes her eyes. She throws her head back. And she puts her knife out and says here daddy help me (laughs) that's a plea for forgiveness that's a plea that says I cannot make it every time I try to do this thing called life on my own I make a gigantic mess I mutilate my life half of it is on the table half of it crumpled up somewhere else And it's a big mess. And it's when we turn to God. And rest of this passage tells us, gives us a picture of what we find when we turn back to God. Micah tells us in verse 16, The nation shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling thing of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. Who is God like you, pardoning iniquity, passing over our transgression? For the remnant of his inheritance. He doesn't retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. You see, a lot of the, it's when he starts out, he gives this picture of a God who sits on a throne and the nations are coming to him and licking the dust, and we don't like that picture. It just doesn't sound like something politically correct that would want to describe today. You see, we want to be this, you know, everybody is happy and stands around and holds hands and sings kumbaya. 
But he tells and gives us the picture of God in a language that they would understand in ancient Near East. And I will show you a picture of how they understood the world around them. You see, this is a picture of an Assyrian king, Shalmaneser. And the guy that's bending down, licking the dust in the words of Micah, it's a Jewish king, Jehu. I mean, this thing, he can go into the British Museum in London, and you can see this. But this comes from the 9th century. Now, this depiction of the political realities of Israel has been in existence for a hundred years by the time Micah steps to the scene. This thing is an Assyrian propaganda. It tells Israel this is the kind of world you live in. You live in a world where Shalmaneser is the king. You live in a world where you, as Israelite, are licking the dust. Micah says, not so Shalmaneser. He says, I have woken up to a different kind of a reality. I have woken up to the reality where Yahweh is the king who sits on the throne. Yahweh is the king of the universe. And Shalmaneser can lick his dust off his feet. He sees Yahweh as the sovereign king. You see, we will never understand the nature of forgiveness until we get the picture that based on the Bible, we'll live in a world where God is the king who reigns. And as the king who reigns, he exercises his kingly prerogative. And he does three things, and really briefly, in this passage. He does three things that only king can do. And this is the passage in the Old Testament, the entire Old Testament, where all three words, all three Hebrew words for sin appear right here. First of all, he passes over our transgressions. Secondly, he casts all our sins into the deep sea. And thirdly, he pardons our iniquities. And you see, when he uses all these three words, they're very descriptive and very colorful. When he says that he passes over our transgression, that he casts our sin into the deep sea, again, he takes us back to the time of Exodus. And Micah is saying, just the same way, Pharaoh and Egypt were our enemies. Now we're coming to understand that Egypt is not the final enemy, but sin is. That sin is the ultimate tyrant. Sin is the thing that's going to hold us in a slave master's grip. But he says our God can snatch us out of the clutches of that sin. He says he describes their existence with these three colorful words. When he first he says that, that God passes over our transgression. The word for transgression there really means rebellion. You see, he says that we as human beings have embraced the life or the full-blown rebellion against the rightful monarch. We have begun an insurrection on a cosmic scale. But not only that, but he goes on and he says that God will cast our sin into the deep sea. And sin there really means missing the mark. 
But it's not kind of a missing the mark and the mark of perfection. As if somehow we can pull ourselves by our bootstraps and be as perfect as God is. No, it's missing the mark in a sense the same way, you know, Joe Bowserman's intended target is always in a C-deck. You know, he's saying you've been lobbing your life and it's been going off target. You're living an aimless life. And if that wasn't even enough, he says, God will have to pardon your iniquity. And the word for iniquity there means to bend something out of shape. You see, to put your full weight behind something and push it, push it with your whole strength in a certain direction. And here's a picture of the sin that I think is pretty memorable here. In 2008, one of the Chinese airlines... It's a Chinese Shang'an Airline flight, CRJ-7. Arrives to its destination in September 2008 with no problem until breaking down shortly after it landed. The plane had to be removed from the runway and the only way to do it was to have the passengers and airport staff to push it. The artist's task of moving a 20-ton vehicle half a mile took, a gr- took the ground nearly two hours. You see, this is a picture. Your life is the plane, and you're pushing and shoving it in a certain direction. You're bending it out of shape. And Micah is saying, who is God like this? Who can take this hell-bent, out-of-shape, aimless human existence and pardon it? And the answer is no one but the only sovereign one, the king who reigns. And as Christians, we come to this text and we ask the same question, who is this God? How can we know Him? And through the pages of New Testament, Jesus steps on the scene. And in the words of Matthew chapter 11, says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, the imagery of the yoke there is the same thing that Micah is talking about. To put a yoke on somebody means to bring them into your sphere of influence. To bring them into your realm. And Jesus hanging on a cross is bidding you and I to come. He's saying, come to me. Come to me, all of you that have made a bloody mess out of your lives. Come to me, all of you that you have mutilated your wonder bread sandwiches of life. Come to me, all of you that have thrown all your passes in life into the sea deck. Come to me. All of you, they've pushed and shoved your life to the point where it's so bent out of shape that you can hardly bear it. And he says, come to me and I will give you rest. And there's a marvelous prayer that is found in a book by Nancy Spittleberg called Winning the Inner War. She says this, Lord, I crawled across the barrenness to you with my empty cup, uncertain in asking any small drop of refreshment. 
If only I had known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. If I had only known you better, I would have come running with a bucket. And friends, tonight is a great night to ask ourselves a question. Where are the areas of my life where I have done this? Where I have run away into the darkness of the forest? Where are the areas of my life that have been so bent out of shape that I've persisted in ignoring and rebelling against God? What are the aspects of my existence that I've insisted on flying solo on? Because tonight is the night where God is calling us to say, hand me the butter knife. Hand me the butter knife. And let me shape your life. Let me give it the meaning and the purpose that I intended for it to have. Let's pray. Father, tonight uh, we're desperately aware of our need for, for your forgiveness. And Father, we know that we need it today. As much as we needed the day uh, we entered into this eternal life with you. And Father, we pray tonight. We pray, Lord, that our hearts will be wide open before you. Uh, Lord, for some of us, we have never entered into this journey with you. We have never come to faith in Jesus Christ. And Lord, tonight, uh, you're asking us to hand you the butter knife. To hand our hearts to you. And Lord, for some of us, we have had that relationship. And Lord, we wandered off and we are stuck somewhere in the darkness, in the thicket. And Lord, you're bidding us to come back. Father, no matter where we are, we know that your heart is to forgive. We know that your anger will not remain forever. But you delight in your steadfast love. You delight in showing your compassion. You delight in being faithful to your people. Father, we love you. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.